Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road. We are starting a new series this morning entitled Jesus Interrupted. And um, I know it won't require much explaining, but we are in a year that has been characterized by, by lots of interruptions. Interruptions to our schedules, to our calendars, to our plans, some of us to our careers, to wedding dates, and the list goes on and on. And so what we're going to be doing in this series all throughout the month of July is paying attention to moments in Jesus' life and ministry when he is responding to an interruption. And, and our aim in this is we want to discover how our Lord deals with the interruptions of life. What is his agenda in the midst of uh, the moments of, of interruption? You know, it's been said that the way that you respond to an interruption reveals who you really are. And, and C.S. Lewis actually um, expands on that in this way. In a letter that he wrote to a friend in 1943, he said, The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending one day by day. What one calls one's real life is a phantom of one's own imagination. And so what we're going to consider today in Mark chapter 2 is how Jesus dealt with several interruptions in his life. We're going to see his agenda shining through in the midst of all of it, that Jesus' agenda is to do his Father's will. He is going to perfectly fulfill what Psalm 40 says when it says, I desire to do your will, oh my God, your law is within my heart. Specifically, what I want us to pay attention to in Mark chapter 2 today is how Jesus, how he lives in perfect alignment with his Father's agenda by preaching grace by revealing hearts, and finally by showing mercy. So let's dive into Mark chapter 2 and see this for ourselves. The text reads like this, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. 
It's an amazing story, is it not? And it may be one that's so familiar to you that, um, that it's almost lost its luster. And so I just I want to ask you to imagine that you're in the room. Let me just sketch this out for you briefly. Imagine that you are in this crowded house. You've heard that Jesus is back in Capernaum which was kind of his home base of his ministry operations on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And picture it, you're in a room surrounded by people because the house is packed. The whole village is trying to get there to hear what Jesus has to say, this authoritative teacher of of God's word. This one who is traveling around the the towns in the Galilee area, he's, he's preaching and he's healing diseases and he's casting out demons and everyone's trying to get near to him to hear what he has to say. And those that, that are in need who are physically suffering are trying to get close to this Jesus. And, and so the crowds are, um, are flocking to him. And Jesus comes to, to the house and he's preaching the word. And, and all of a sudden, imagine you are in you're in the room listening to him, and you hear footsteps above you. And you start to get a little distracted, even though Jesus is, is preaching, no doubt, the most captivating sermon you've ever heard. But what's happened is there's four men trying to get their friend, a paralyzed man on a mat, trying to get him to Jesus. And because there's so many people at the door, they won't let them in. They just kind of turn and shrug their shoulders. But these friends are relentless, and they walk up, the stairs to the roof of what would be a one-story house at this time. It would be kind of like a patio area where they were up on the roof. And all of a sudden, you're listening to Jesus, but you have to stop because dirt is falling on your head and falling on his head. And and these friends are removing the tiles of the roof. And uh, no doubt the owner of the house, whether it was Peter or someone else, we don't know, but that owner of the house must have looked up and said, what are you doing to my roof? And all of a sudden, the paralyzed man is lowered down and and nestled at Jesus' feet. Picture it. You're in the room watching this happen. What do you think is the expression on Jesus' face? The whole crowd is silent, just anxiously awaiting what's going to happen next. What's Jesus going to do? What's he going to say? In Matthew's gospel account, in Matthew chapter 9, it says that Jesus looks at the man and says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. The King James says, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. I picture him with a smile on his face, looking down at this man, looking up at the four friends whose heads are peering down through the hole. No doubt, this, this hole in the roof, they've, the, the Greek text literally says they unroofed the roof. They're probably sweating and breathing heavy. And Jesus sees their faith. And he says, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. He goes on to say, rise, take up your bed and go home. The man gets up and walks out of the house. The crowd moves for him this time. They make way for him to go. And I just picture the friends just jumping up and down, cheering, high-fiving, chest bumping, just so excited that Jesus did it. He healed their friend. And so this is an incredible story, but what does it teach us? What does this have to do with responding to interruptions, with the Father's agenda in mind? What we're going to see here is that the Father's agenda is that we would preach grace. And Jesus, in this story, in verses 1 through 5, he actually is responding to two different interruptions. 
First, he's, he's gone back to Capernaum with his disciples because the crowds are flocking to him. And he's, he'd have to withdraw to desolate places. That's the only place where he could pray and spend time with his father. And he was going back home with his disciples, sitting in the house. And can you picture it? People knocking on the door. There's whispering, Jesus is home. It says that it was reported that he was at home. News travels fast about Jesus at this time. And so people want to come and get near him. And what does Jesus do? In verse 2, he's preaching the word to them. He had said um, to Peter back in chapter 1, verse 38, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. And the message that he's proclaiming from Mark 1.14, he's proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you see Jesus' instinct when he's interrupted is to preach grace? He has come. He has come to proclaim that God's favor is available because the king is here. He has come to forgive sins. And we're going to see it in the next interruption. As he's proclaiming this message, the hole in the roof is created. The paralyzed man's lowered down. And it's like Jesus is saying, ah, my point exactly. Just as I was saying, I'm the king who has come to forgive sins. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Do you see how quickly Jesus uh, responds with grace? He sees what his father's doing in this moment. He responds to this interruption with the grace of God on his lips. And I want us to see from, uh, I want us to see what, what Jesus is doing here. Because the friends came with a really good agenda, did they not? They came to get their buddy healed. They knew that Jesus could do it. And put yourself in the paralyzed man's shoes. He's probably sitting there looking up at Jesus. He knows the depths of his own heart. He knows that he's sinful, but he also wants his legs to be healed. And whether or not his, his condition as a paralyzed man is directly tied to a specific sin in his life or not, it's biblically possible either way. But regardless, this man is a sinner. And all suffering in the world is traced back to the fact that, that we have all sinned and we live in a broken and fallen world. But what Jesus is doing here is he is saying, to the man. I see your condition, and, I, and I'm going to get to that, but there's actually a far more pressing, far deeper need here. I was thinking about it this way um, this week. I was thinking about what happens when somebody is taken to the emergency room. Immediately they're taken to triage and they're assessed on a scale of one to five. Is this a, is this a situation where uh, immediate resuscitation is required? Does this patient require immediate life-saving intervention? If so, that is level one. That must be dealt with right now. Or the scale goes all the way to five. This is actually non-emergent. It's something that needs to be dealt with, but it can wait a little bit. And what Jesus is doing here is he's looking at this man saying, I see this need and I'm going to deal with it. But please understand that, that there, is a, there is immediate life-saving intervention required. Because your greatest need your greatest need is to be reconciled to God. Your greatest need is for your sin to be forgiven. And Jesus says, I have come to do that. I have come to forgive you of your sins. And he says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And so I want us to, I want us to consider what is the deepest longing in your life right now? 
What is the thing for which you've, you are coming to the Lord over and over and you're just saying, if only this circumstance would change. If only, if only this job would work out. If only this relationship would work out. If only I could have this child or this house or you name it. If only, Lord. Are you longing for Jesus to change your circumstances? Or are you available for Jesus to come and change your heart in the midst of your circumstances? Because that's what he's longing to do. He has come to forgive sins. And so I just want us to ask the question as we go through this story today. What are all the interruptions in your life right now revealing about your agenda? Is your agenda like Jesus is to preach grace? And if you, if you have received this forgiveness of sins, if you know what it is to hear from Jesus, daughter, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Son, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Would you respond with joy and with courage? Would you be like the four friends who will do anything, will go to any length to drag their buddy to Jesus? Who are the people in your life right now that Jesus is calling you to bring them to him, to testify to his grace? And if you have never trusted in Jesus, if you don't know this comfort and joy and peace that's available to you, when Jesus says over you, the word over your life is, child, your sin is forgiven. You can come to him today. He is the sin forgiver. This man doesn't even have the chance to say, will you forgive me, Jesus? Jesus reads his heart. He knows exactly what this man is thinking. He knows, he sees the faith in this man. And Jesus is so eager to give grace that he looks at this man and says, your sin is forgiven. Is that our agenda? Like our Father's agenda to preach grace. But not only that, I want us to, to move on to verses 6 through 9 and see this, that the Father's agenda is not only to preach grace, but it is to reveal hearts. Let's see what Jesus does in verses 6 through 9, right after he makes this bold statement, Son, your sins are forgiven. In verse 6 it says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? So again, picture this scene. Jesus seeing the paralyzed man in front of him, says, son, your sins are forgiven. You can almost hear the gasp from the scribes. You can almost hear the people whispering, what did he just say? Because what immediately comes to mind for them is, is who is this man to be able to forgive sins, to claim this divine prerogative, to be the one who forgives sins? The scribes would have known that an Old Testament prophet would say something like this, the Lord has put away your sin." The Lord has taken away your sin. It's what Nathan, the prophet, says to David after he commits adultery and repents of his sin and confesses it to the Lord. Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. But here Jesus is saying, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. I am God in flesh who has come to save you. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. And so... Jesus is, is interrupted here in verse 6, but it's not by something that anyone else was aware of. 
The first interruption was very evident. The roof being broken open and a paralyzed man lowered down on a mat. But this next interruption in verse 6, it's in the quietness of the hearts of these scribes. They're questioning, saying, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Isn't it ironic that Jesus, God in flesh, hears their thoughts as they're questioning this? And, and, and I want us to see that, that um, the fact that he can read thoughts is one indicator that this actually is God in flesh. This is, this is the one who has come to, to deal with our sin. He sees our questions and our doubts down to the bottom. He sees the depths of our hearts. Every question and doubt that you and I have, every sinful thought and sinful motive, Jesus is aware of it. And he's willing to be interrupted by it because he's not only full of grace, as we saw in verses 1 through 5, he is so full of truth. One of the things spoken over Jesus about him when he was a boy being dedicated in the temple in Luke chapter 2 This man named Simeon said that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And that's what Jesus is doing in this moment. He is revealing their thoughts, and he's unwilling to pass by this interruption. He asked this profound question, why do you question these things in your hearts? Did you know that when someone asks you a question, what actually happens with your brain is that it kind of hijacks your thought process. Your whole brain is engaged. And and I was doing some research on this and was fascinated by it this past week, that when someone asks you a question, it stops you in your tracks. And for you to really consider that question, your brain releases serotonin so that you can relax and really take in that information, and then releases dopamine to engage your brain to go and find the answer. And either seeking the reward of being able to respond rightly to that question, you, you speak up and say the answer that your brain has found, or if you're kind of nervous that you have the wrong answer and you don't want to be embarrassed, you kind of shut down with a sort of fight or flight instinct. But isn't it fascinating that Jesus allows his thoughts, he's fully God, so he knows the thoughts of these people, but he's fully man, he allows his brain to be hijacked by their question because he loves them and wants them to repent. And he wants the people around to hear the truth. And so he speaks up asking this question, why? Why do you question these things in your hearts? What's what's the motive underneath it? What's it revealing? Of course, Jesus knows the answer to that question. The reason why they're questioning it is because they don't believe that he is the Son of God. They don't believe that he is God in flesh, who he claims to be. But it's almost as if Jesus is even going deeper, saying, you're starting to see the miracles I'm performing the authority that my word has, the way that I am not just teaching the law as someone trying to interpret it. I wrote the law and I'm explaining it to you that I've come to fulfill it. I've come to live the perfect life and to die for the forgiveness of sins and I will rise again. And Jesus is exposing in these scribes the why behind their questions and doubts is that you don't want to submit to me as your Lord. You don't want to lose control over your life. Even if you're beginning to believe that it's true, even if you're beginning to question your questions and question your doubts because of the evidence you're seeing of my authority, you're unwilling to lay down control. And so Jesus came to reveal hearts. He goes on to say in in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? 
I was reading one commentary this week that was saying, you know, after, uh, you know, after 2,000 years and lots of pages written about this question, I think we all have to admit we still have a pretty good question before us. Which is easier, Jesus? Because it depends on how you look at it. On the one hand, it seems like it would be easier to just say your sins are forgiven because nobody can really verify that. But if you say, rise and walk, and it doesn't happen, you're immediately exposed as not having the authority to do what you say. But we know, we know how costly it's going to be for Jesus to forgive sins. We know what this is going to take, that he is going to have to go to the cross, that, that the Son of God is going to have to lay down his life to pay for the forgiveness of sins. And we know that, that what's going to happen as a result of him taking this step out there, in this exchange with the scribes, this is going to lead him down a path towards the cross. We see the shadow of the cross crossing Jesus' path even now. And so he says, um, he says, which is easier? He says, why do you question these things? Before we move on, I just want us to see that what Jesus is doing here is he is revealing the thoughts of these scribes' hearts with a question. And the same question remains for us today. What, what questions and doubts remain in your heart? What are the things that, that you are um, thinking in your heart, but you won't just say it to Jesus? Did you know that he is, he is willing to engage your questions and doubts? He will show himself faithful if you will bring those questions to him. And he loves you too much to allow you to remain in control of your life. He says, would you trust me? Would you come and, and lay down your control and allow me to lead you? Because I will lead you into all truth and, and all joy and all love. Would you trust that I'm worthy of, of, uh, of following? That I am indeed the Savior who came to forgive sins and I'm the Lord of all. And you will find your greatest joy in, in laying down control and trusting me. So what are the ways that, that all the interruptions in your life right now, friends, are revealing your desire for control? Would you trust Jesus in the midst of it and follow him in laying down your own agenda to take up the Father's? We see that the Father's agenda is to preach grace and to reveal hearts. But finally, and we'll end here, the Father's agenda is to show mercy. Did you catch how this story ends? Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus says, I want to show you that I have the power to do the unseen miracle by doing the physical miracle. I have the power to meet the spiritual need and I'm going to prove it to you by the fact that I meet this spiritual need. I'm going to demonstrate my authority by showing mercy to this suffering man so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. And look at the response in verse 12. He rose, immediately picked up his bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Do you see, friends, that the way that Jesus responds to interruptions, by laying down his own agenda in order to take up his Father's agenda, it results in glory to God, and it results in, in amazement and worship for these people. Jesus shows mercy. He's so quick to show mercy when he's aware of physical suffering around him. And, uh, and I just want to ask you, um, in this time that we're living in, 
where there is suffering around us. There's great need that we're aware of in our city, and there's great need to the ends of the earth. Is your is your instinct, when interrupted, when confronted by the suffering in this world, the physical needs all around you, to show mercy because of the mercy you've received from Jesus, to, to care for those in need in order to demonstrate that Jesus really does have authority to forgive sins, that he's the one who forgives sins and gives us a new heart and changes our life. Is that evident in the way that you show mercy to those around you? I was considering this week, uh, just the other night on Wednesday night at our, our prayer meeting, we were praying for Soul Winners India, for the orphanages that they have in India for children who've come off the streets from desperate situations. And I got to travel to India and see this work that they're doing. And it just illustrated for me this idea that meeting physical needs, showing mercy to those who are suffering, demonstrate, demonstrates Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Because these brothers and sisters in India are taking the gospel to the unreached. They are living out Jesus' command to make disciples of all the nations. And as they're taking this gospel to people who have never heard it before, as they're preaching grace, they're realizing that the nations are hurting. That people are suffering. We live in a world of physical suffering. And consistent with this call to preach grace is this call to show mercy that they have established these orphanages, these children's homes, where these children are hearing about the love of Jesus, even as they're having their physical needs met. And there are beautiful testimonies of these little boys and girls trusting in Jesus and the community around them who, who wouldn't profess faith in Jesus, who's opposed to, um, to the gospel, is, is amazed and astonished by what God is doing. And there's great reverence for the work that our brothers and sisters are doing. May this be true of us friends, and how we respond here in Houston. May our house churches take seriously the call to to find the local predicament around them and to to go and meet that need through the dollars that uh, that we delegate as part of our local deed budget. May we be the types of people as a community here at Seven Mile Road that meet physical needs in order to demonstrate Jesus's authority to forgive our sins. And so let me close by saying this. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in this passage. Did you catch it? This is the first of 14 times that he's going to say this in the Gospel of Mark. And he says that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is his favorite title for himself. He's going to use it to describe the fact that he's going to suffer and be betrayed and and arrested and crucified. He's going to die on the cross and on the third day he's going to rise. It's a statement of the fact that he has come to lay down his life as a sacrifice for our sins, but it's also a statement of his authority. He's quoting from Daniel chapter 7, He is the Son of Man. To him is given thrones and dominions and a kingdom that will never end. Brothers and sisters, hear this. Jesus will return as as the reigning king. He came to inaugurate his kingdom as he proclaimed repent because the king is here and one day he will return and death will be no more sickness will be no more paralysis will be no more cancer will be no more he may not change your circumstances on this side of heaven but if you come to him he will forgive your sins and you will enjoy perfect health forever with him because your sins will be forgiven and He will return and make our body like his glorious body, and we will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. Would you come to Jesus and trust in him? He's full of grace and full of truth. He's full of mercy. 
Would you respond to the interruptions with the Father's agenda to preach grace, to reveal hearts, and to show mercy? Amen. Let me pray for us. And so, Father, we say thank you that this is true, that you sent your son Jesus, the one with authority to forgive sins. You sent him to rescue us. Jesus, thank you that you came. You came and lived a perfect life. You always did the things pleasing to your Father. You always lived in step with the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you obeyed on our behalf in all the places that we failed, and you died for the forgiveness of our sins, that we could know the joy, the courage that comes from from having our sins forgiven. I pray that that you would restore unto all of us the joy of our salvation. And for my my brothers and sisters, um, would you help them to live with your agenda? And I pray for those who don't yet know you, Jesus, that they would come to trust in you, that you're the crucified and resurrected King and forgiveness of their sins is available in you. Would you make that true, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.